0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. What made me stick at Midtown? I was in a pretty rough patch in my life and was feeling very alone and isolated and then got convinced to go on the Boston Spring Break trip and immediately it was, this is community, this is what it feels like to be surrounded by scriptural encouragement and didn't wanna leave and quickly got involved in a life group and serving and just continued, yeah.
1: Coming into Midtown, I wasn't a Christian and being able to ask questions and not be judged. They were always there with love and grace and wanted to work with me. They were pushing me towards Christ with the questions they were asking and um, how they were just bringing me into their community.
0: And so as we have continued growing with the church body and becoming life group leaders, I don't know that I can really put into words how comforting it is to be able to catch up with someone on their day and talk about how the Lord is working in them and then to wholeheartedly ask that back to me and know that they genuinely care about what I'm going through and the work that Lord is doing through my heart.
1: Going to Flying Saucer on Mondays for our our Rhythm or Pint Night has been a great place to bring other people in from outside the church community and bring them in. We have Tons of people every week who come out who aren't Christians and we've just been building with them, some of them for years. We've really seen growth in the couples in our life group as well. Them taking more of an ownership and a role in our life group. A
0: challenge that we're going through right now is our life group has grown a lot. And so there's a lot of weight in wanting to lay a foundation for something that is based in scripture And also digging out all of those weaknesses that we have recognized and bringing that up to the other members of our life group of this is where, like, we have been called to be and this is where we are. And these are things we're going to have to sacrifice to get there.
1: It's a good picture of what we are after and what we are about as a church. Our aim is to get people into relationship with each other so that they can begin to help each other grow in Christ and give expression to what the Bible calls the church to be. Um, Our terminology is that we want to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. That's our language for what Scripture calls God's people to be, who we're supposed to be in the world, and how we're supposed to be together in our pursuits of the mission that Jesus has set us on. And so if you're new with us, our church is predominantly made up of smaller groups that we call life groups. Right now, we have about 70 of them in the greater Columbia area. I've actually even got a map that can kind of show you where a lot of them are located, So we've got about 70 of these groups that are meeting weekly to share life with one another and provide encouragement into each other's lives to help each other grow in Christ and to be about the mission of Jesus. And this is anchor point foundational for us. We actually have more people in groups than we do on Sundays in our gatherings. So that's... uh, A weird phenomenon in church world. When we talk to other pastors and other churches, they are very caught off guard by that. I don't know what it says necessarily about our Sundays and my preaching, but I don't want to go there. Uh, It's just that we care so much about all of this stuff being pressed into real life, everyday life, and we really want people connected in relationships so that you can help each other grow in Christ. And I think it's a strength for us. I think we do a lot of things okay, if not reasonably well, as a church community. But I would say we are exceptionally good at getting people connected and helping them start to take steps towards Jesus in relationship. That's our sweet spot. It's what we are about. And a huge part of what this series is about. We're talking about how do we make Columbia a little bit more like heaven every day. And we've been teaching that Jesus' strategy for that is people's lives being changed by Him over time, gradually. And a a primary component of that is the practice that we will look at today that we call community or fellowship. The idea that our lives are meant to be interconnected in such a way that it becomes meaningful and transformative as as God works in our midst as a community. And so we're looking at what our church calls our member covenant practices. They're just some agreed upon practices that we say we will step into that we think help us grow gradually over time into the people that God wants for us to be. And as I said today we'll be looking at the covenant practice Of community. This is something that we've taught uh, for 12 years now as a church, and we've got all sorts of resources. I'm not going to be able to give you the whole thing today on our uh, series page and on the sermon page on our website. You'll find tons of extra resources. And so if this sparks some thoughts or some questions in your mind, we've got books that we recommend there. We've got previous sermons. We've got some articles. All sorts of resources available to you. What I want to do is give a little bit of a foundation. For all this stuff that we're talking about as a way of uh, showing you the way that our church thinks about this. And so if you'll start with me in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you're new with us, if you don't have a Bible, there are some on the ends of the rows in baskets. I am sure a very friendly person would be glad to pass one down to you. And then you can make your way to Mark chapter 3. There's a table of contents there at the beginning of that Bible. And so you can find out where you need to turn to page number wise by looking at that table of contents and finding the book of Mark. Mark. So what we like to do, When we come together on Sundays, uh, during the time of teaching is we'll open the Bible and we'll try to understand what is meant there in its original context, uh, in its original language. Sometimes we want to know what the original audience would have thought, would have heard, would have understood the meaning to be. And so we'll spend a good bit of time sorting through what the Bible says and what it means. And then we'll spend a good bit of time talking about how we take that and apply it into our lives here and today. And that's normally our model and that's what we'll do today. We'll look at a few different places in scripture and I want to set up some historical context in here that I think really brings some of this to life. And so Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, to get us going. This is uh, describing a setting where Jesus has been doing some teaching. It says, And, and his mother and his brothers came, Jesus' mother and his brothers, they came and standing outside... They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. These are Jesus' followers, his disciples. They're sitting around him, listening to his teaching. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him. And Jesus is not confused, just in case you misinterpreted that. Like he, he, knows, he knows who they are. That's not it's a rhetorical question. Who are my mother and my brothers he looks around him at those who are seated and he said here are my mother and my brothers exclamation point for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother i don't know how this strikes you a lot of it will depend on where you grew up and how you've been socialized to think about yourself and your existence in a family, your existence in a greater community. This is a shock and awe statement that Jesus just made to the people who are around him. I'll explain why. Let me give you another cross-reference. You can stay there in Mark 3, and we'll turn eventually to Acts chapter 2, but I'll put something on the screen here just as another reference point for a way that Jesus says this very similar idea. This is Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, starting in verse 25, or uh, scripture says, Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Can anyone be a disciple of Jesus? Yes or no, not rhetorical. No, Jesus just said no. He he just said you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even your own life. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, again he says it just in case we didn't catch it the first time, cannot Be my disciple. It's not exactly a great PR move by Jesus here. Like if he had a PR rep, this is where the guy would kind of step in and be like, "Okay, it's been a long day. We're all tired. Jesus has said a lot of things today. We've got plenty to think about. Well, uh, let's catch back up tomorrow, and we're gonna we're gonna sweep Jesus off the stage before he loses all the votes." Not exactly a family friendly teaching here by Jesus. He is not apparently listening to Christian radio these days. Just to make sure you don't think the Bible's teaching something that it isn't, later on in the book of John, Jesus is on the cross and he actually makes plans for his mother to be taken care of in his absence. He invites John, his close friend and disciple, to take his mother Mary into his home so he's not advocating for unnecessarily abandoning your biological family. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus affirms the commandment to honor mother and father from the Ten Commandments. And he actually blasts the Pharisees for refusing to take care of their, of their parents. So don't, don't get the wrong idea about what he's doing. But let's not, let's not soft pedal it either. This is a very controversial, very shock and awe statement. And Jesus is saying with these and some other teachings that he gives, that he is creating a new family on the earth. And that's how he languages it in Mark chapter 3, which we read a second ago. He says, here are my children. Brothers and my sisters, these people who have followed me, who have given their lives to follow me and put into practice my teachings and are trusting me by faith to make them right with God. This was totally category busting for Jesus's original audience. Let me give you some historical context to explain why this would have been completely categorically wild for his original listeners to hear. This is historical context. This is anytime we study scripture, we want to do our best to discern how the original audience would have interpreted what's being said. So I'm going to talk for a little bit. If you want more on some of this, I got a recommended resource for you. It's a book called When the Church Was a Family. It's uh, on our website, so you can access it there. This book has been one of the most influential books on how I read the Bible. And so if you want more on any of what I'm talking about here, I would strongly recommend this book, When the Church Was a Family, by Joseph Hellerman. It's fantastic. So this is what's critical. When Jesus says that his people, his followers, are a new kind of family on the earth, that they are to function like a family, he does not mean that his followers should function like a modern American family. He means his people should operate like an ancient Mediterranean family. I know that because modern American families didn't exist. And the people that he's talking to were ancient Mediterranean's. Jesus is speaking to a collectivist culture. You might have heard it called a communal culture. Sometimes it's called a strong group culture. You and I live not in a collectivist culture or a communal culture or a strong group culture. We live in an individualist culture or a weak group culture. Uh, In fact, it's the most extreme individualist culture that's ever existed. What I mean by that is we primarily see ourselves as individuals. We do not primarily see ourselves as a part of the groups that we belong to. So this is all the way down into how you view yourself in the world, and it's firmly entrenched in everything that you think, say, do, believe, and read, okay? And first century Jewish culture was a strong group culture all the way down to the core, So let me read you a brief description from scholar and anthropologist Bruce Molina. This is from his work, Christian Origins and Cultural Anthropology, just to give you a little bit of understanding of what we're talking about when we say strong group culture or a strong group society. Here's what he says. In a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group. For his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Correspondingly, he or she perceives other persons, primarily in terms of the groups to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary, only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has the priority over the individual member. You'll note this is not how you think, right? This is a strong group society, and this is how they thought. It's basically every culture in the history of the world except for modern Westerners. So even right now, most of the people on the planet Earth think the way that I just described. Modern Westerners, you and I are the unique ones. And so just real quick, for example, uh, the Japanese word, Japan is more of a strong group culture. The Japanese word for person roughly translates as in between others. That's their word for person. To be a person is to exist in between other persons. That's what it means to be a human. Uh, In Spanish, there's a saying, mi casa That's su casa, right? My house is your house. Our saying in America is, a man's house is his castle. It's the exact opposite. My house is where I go to get away from you. It's quite distinctly not su casa. (laughs) Total opposite. So most of us, we just assume... That our own individual autonomy and need for self-expression and our individual dreams and personal pursuit of happiness needs to be more important than the needs of any group that we belong to because we're a weak group society. So we think the individual should have priority over the group. So the idea that a group would have priority over an individual, honestly, it strikes us even as a little bit oppressive. And maybe we've seen some ways that this has gone bad, and certainly it can go very badly. Strong group cultures tend to have very clear roles, uh, family roles, gender roles, occupational roles, and so some of these can get wildly off track. And my point is not to critique one culture or the other, just to say that Jesus' world was a strong group world. This is how everyone thought all the way down to the core. It was a communal culture, and in that world, your primary group was your biological family. People saw themselves primarily less of an individual and more as a member of a family, biological family group. That's just how they conceived of their personhood. Let me continue to tease that out. First century Jewish culture was also something that's called a patrilineal culture. Patrilineal culture. It just means that your family was defined by your father's bloodline and not by marriage. It's defined by your father's bloodline, not by marriage. This is why there are no last names in the Bible. They didn't operate by last name. The way that they identified themselves was they would say their first name, and then they would say son of, son of. So I would introduce myself as Adam, son of Phil, son of Charles, if we were a patrilineal society, because they existed as part of their father's Family tree. So this is where it gets a little weird and hard to even understand how this would work itself out, but technically speaking, your wife in a patrilineal society was not a member of your family. Your mother, technically speaking, was not a member of your family. Her family was her father and her siblings, and your family would be your father and your siblings. So in their society, marriage was almost always arranged, and it was arranged based on what would benefit the families involved. The pursuit of of romantic interests and emotional intimacy was really not much of a consideration in marriage. It was about what was best for the groups that you belong to. Now, you'll note, once again, this is not how we think. If you're familiar with the film classic uh, Princess Diaries 2, (laughs) then you'll recall the gripping storyline where Anne Hathaway is being forced into a marriage for the betterment of of her nation, of her people group, and at the end, we all come around to modern Western ideals of individual freedoms and rights to choose, and she gives an impassioned speech about how she needs to be able to do what's best for her, and that everyone should do that. And as Westerners, we all are like, and Hathaway is the best. <laughs> it's totally different. And I'm not, I'm not trying to critique one or the other. I just want you to understand what's happening here. So if you lived in a patrilineal society, very rarely was your spouse your closest emotional bond? More often, your siblings were your closest emotional bond. Your best friends were your siblings, not necessarily your spouse. Maybe, maybe not your spouse. Your primary sense of loyalty was to your siblings because they were the ones who were still in your family. And you had a strong group mentality. And so Jesus here Calls his followers siblings. And he draws on the relationship that in their mind would have been the most intimate, the closest emotional bonds. And he says, That's us. That's what I'm doing. Among the people who follow me and trust me as Messiah, Savior, Lord, Christ, I'm creating a new family on the earth. The same way that these folks would have thought about their siblings, Jesus transfers that over into his kingdom and his people. And Jesus' call was to put his family ahead of the patrilinear family that you already had all of your attachment to. That's why it was so unthinkable that Jesus would say this. Now, just really quickly, to show you how foreign of an idea this is, let me reread that description that I read a second ago. But instead of the word group, let me just insert church. And I want you to just feel how your soul is uncomfortable. Ready? This is what I just read. All I'm doing is just putting church in as an application. In the church... Each person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Correspondingly, he or she perceives other people, primarily in terms of the churches to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has the priority over the individual member. How many of you right now are like, I knew this was a cult. I knew it. (laughs) I knew it. Do you feel, uh, unless you grew up somewhere other than the modern West, for those of you who did grow up somewhere other than the modern West, my hunch is that as you hear that, you're thinking, yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. That that does seem good and right and beautiful. I mean, there, there are extreme ways that that can go bad, but generally speaking, yeah. For the rest of us, what are you doing right now? What are you doing right now? Pretty much none of us think this way. But for Jesus, to be a child of the Father is to at the same time be a member of God's family. And not a member of a family like a modern American family where we live in the same house but mostly run our own individual lives and we look at our phones more than we look at each other, but a member of a family like an ancient Mediterranean family where we had a sense of loyalty and belonging and others-centeredness that was just natural and instinctive and intuitive to these people that we're now in covenant relationship with. So the question is, did the earliest followers of Jesus actually do this? Like, did they they follow this teaching? I'm so glad you asked. Acts chapter 2. Flip over in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. How did the followers of Jesus who heard all this, how did they actually begin to implement that? Did they do this? Did they follow this teaching? Did they orient themselves as a new kind of family on the earth? Acts chapter 2. I want to look at uh, picking up in verse 41. <clears throat> uh, Peter has just stood up and preached a sermon about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's called everyone to repentance and faith, that Jesus' provision for sin on the cross was sufficient, but if we'll trust him by faith, that God saves us by grace, which means a free gift that we're freely invited and welcomed into God's family, made in right relationship with God. And then Acts chapter 2 in verse 41 begins to talk about the response of those who believe. So verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves. The word devoted means to continue at all times, give unremitting care and concern to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The Greek word there for fellowship is the word koinonia. It means uh, togetherness. It's, a, it's an intermingling of lives. That's the concept. Lives that are connected in significant kind of ways. It says they devoted themselves to the teaching they were receiving from Jesus, such as the teaching that they are to be a new family on the earth, and to the fellowship, to intermingling of lives. I don't know how many of you grew up in church. Depending on the church and the environment, that could be a blessing or a curse on your life. I picked up some good things along the way. Uh, I grew up around church, And I think one of the most critical things that I picked up was that this is the church. (laughs) And this is the steeple. And when you open it up, here's all the people. My uh, fingers right there are what you call interdigitated. It's a word you might take home. Interdigitated. The description of the early church in Acts chapter 2 is a devotion to lives that became interdigitated, inseparably connected the way that we were taught in Sunday school. It's a good one. It's a good one. Unremitting care and concern for lives that are intermingled, interdigitated. Verse 42 goes on. It says they were also devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles in this unique time as God is attesting and proving the fact that Jesus was the Messiah who died for sin and who rose, verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It says they had all things in common. There was never a me, it was we. Acts chapter 4 actually says that in part of their selling of their possessions, some people actually sold their homes, sold their houses, so that they would have liquid assets to be able to bless and help those who were in need. How much do you have to love someone to sell your house to make sure that their needs are met? That's a short list for me of people who qualify. This was the way the early church approached each other. Selling their own homes, if that's what it took, to make sure that everyone was taken care of. In verse 46, and day by day... Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So there's a a Greek word in that sentence that just has no English equivalent, so it's impossible to translate or even to try to translate. Sometimes it gets translated, continued to meet together, or uh, that they were devoted with one accord. It's the word homothumadon. It's used in Acts chapter 19 when a riot breaks out. It's actually a word, uh, it's a compound word. It means uh, together in unison, fiercely. So it's almost a word picture of a wave of humans. So picture a crowd storming the court after the buzzer beater in the national championship game, and it's just this wave of people. That's the word picture for the way that the early church pursued life following Jesus together fiercely, devoted, aggressively together like a wave of people in movement to pursue growth and togetherness in Christ. And then verse 47 says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What are they doing in this description? They're functioning like people who were a strong group family. You see it? We have all things in common, and we are going to share life because we are the group now. It's not simply a family. It's a a strong group family. The New Testament writers would carry this theme on through all of the New Testament. The Greek word for brothers and sisters is the word adelphoi. It appears 342 times in the New Testament writings. The word disciple is used 280, and Christian is used three times. This idea of brothers and sisters is the dominant framework for what Jesus is creating on the earth. In fact, it is used by every single one of the writers in the New Testament. And in the midst of the early church operating this way, God's adding people to their number day by day. There was something compelling about this community that was oriented around Jesus. Here's what I mean. While the strong group mentality... Of Jesus was probably the most jolting thing to us today. That's actually not necessarily what riled people up in Jesus's day. What actually got people frustrated in accusing Jesus of sin was who he invited to be a part of his family. That was the controversial thing in Jesus's day. And if you recall, if you're familiar with scripture, how often Jesus gets accused of sin based on who he's hanging out with. Happens all the time to him. In Jesus' words that we read in Mark chapter 3, he says, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus defines his family not by bloodline, but by, quote, whoever does the will of God. Elsewhere, he says the will of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. So for those who have faith in Jesus, we are doing the will of God. And Jesus' world was way more ethnocentric than ours. Israel believed that they were the family of God just by nationality and ethnicity. And so when Jesus says these words, he's now opening up the kingdom of God to anyone who would repent and trust him by faith, no matter who they were. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, regardless of gender, race, socioeconomic status, or whatever else. This is what made him so scandalous He's still exclusive. He just changes the means by which he excludes. Most people are exclusive on the grounds of race, gender, or socioeconomic status. And Jesus says, Not in my kingdom, but he remains exclusive on the grounds of repentance and faith. Jesus says, Not everyone can be my disciple. But if you'll repent and believe, anyone, regardless of background, Regardless of where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you, come on in. There's grace and there's space for you in the family of God. It's one of my favorite things about our church. We have so many people who are coming from so many different backgrounds and so many different issues and different perspectives. And all of us find common ground at the cross of Jesus because all of us are welcome as long as we're willing to place our faith and trust in him and repent and turn from sin. God's grace and place in his family are available to all of us. All right, so for us, all of this, because we, most of us, are not familiar with strong group, society, norms, that all sounds foreign if not scary. Maybe both. We're going to have to step in and do some practice. It's not going to be intuitive. It's not going to be an easy shift towards my sense of belonging to a biological family i just naturally and easily shift that over to my sense of belonging in god's family and let's just move let's move forward there's going to be some practice needed which is why we talked about in our first sermon of the series that we follow jesus and are changed and transformed by him through teaching and practice so for us as a church our life groups are the intentional structure that we've built to try to put us in some space to be able to practice to over time try to become these kinds of communities. They're just structure though. They're just structure. They don't necessarily make it happen. They just put us in the place where we can. And so what I want to do just to finish our time, let me just give you a few things that I think are building blocks for this. I hope that this is a a encouragement to those of you who've been around for a while as you see yourself growing in some of these things. And hopefully these things that I'm going to say have just become intuitive and common sense to you over time. For those of you who are new, I just want you to know some things that you might need to think through if you're going to begin to take steps of practice where you step into a group and try to participate the way that Jesus calls his people to participate with one another. And like I've already said, we've got tons of resources on our website for this on the sermon page. So if you want more, um, all that is very accessible for you. Let me just give you a few things that I think are good application points and things for us to think through. The first one is that to be this kind of community, it takes commitment. There is a certain amount of commitment that is necessary. Uh, Here's how I've talked about this before. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. This is how Peter talks to, to the church that he's writing to. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Catch verse 10. Once... You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So apart from Jesus, there are some folks who I sense and understand to be my people. It's a small group. It would be my mom and dad. They're my people. My sister. It would be my wife and now our kids. It would be my wife's parents, her sibling. That's about it. That's about it. They are my people. Uh, You, apart from Jesus, you are not my people. I don't really sense any responsibility for you. If my wife calls me later and says, I just had a flat tire. I'm stranded on the interstate. I can't get over to the shoulder and cars are buzzing past me. I need some help. I intuitively just know I need to go help her. I don't have to pause and think, Okay, I mean, I wonder if that's really like my role, you know? I mean, I'm trying to learn boundaries. Is this like an appropriate thing for me to do? It's like, no, she's my people. I don't have to analyze it. I don't have to analyze it. I just know. That's my job because she's my people. And what Peter is saying here and what Jesus has been teaching in Mark 3 and in the other sections of Scripture that we looked at was there is some transference of that sensibility towards the, the community of faith. Now, in a church our size, obviously that's not going to be everyone to the same level. That's not what I'm saying. But Peter is saying that we weren't a people, but now we are each other's people. There's a sense in which we just have to intuitively come around the idea that we are committed to each other for better or worse. And part of the reason that I'm saying that is, if you demand that you're going to keep your options open as to whether you'll be here on Sunday or whether you will be at group time this week, then we cannot move forward with any sort of progress in becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be. Like, if we just don't even know if you're going to be there, how in the world can we actually begin to interdigitate our lives, if you will? A part of this is just humility. A part of this is the humility to just say, you know what, I will do what the group is doing. I'm not going to fight for my preferences or the way that I wish things were going to be done. I will just submit with a happy heart to what the group is doing. And we get this in other arenas of life. Like, I, I want our family to have family dinners throughout the week. But the only way that can happen is if there's enough humility in my house for everyone to say, I will come to the dinner table when I'm told it is dinner time and not when I personally prefer to eat. If I say, hey, it's family dinner time, and my daughter says, I prefer to eat in my room, and my son says, I prefer to eat outside, and my baby says, I prefer to eat in the middle of the night, (laughs) then we can't actually have any sort of togetherness around the table. This is so common sense, it's wild that we have a hard time transferring that into group settings. You know this, you know this intuitively. There's just a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of commitment that's got to be in place for us to even begin to start to take steps in the right direction. And so I think maybe one step for some of you would just be putting into place some commitment and saying, these are going to be my people. And to be honest, Jesus is talking to a strong group culture, and he's calling them to transfer their loyalty from biological family to spiritual family. For most of us, that's not the transfer that we need to make because we're not a strong group culture or an individualistic culture. And the transfer that we need to make is to Jesus's spiritual family in primary loyalty from our primary loyalty being to ourselves. That's the transfer that needs to get made. That I am, my primary sense of loyalty is to me. And Jesus is saying I need to be loyal to a group larger than just me. And some of that is just the humility to say, I will do what the group is doing, and I'll step in with some amount of commitment. I just think it's a building, but it's a foundational sort of thing where if that's not in place, and listen, those of you who are, who are midtown folks and you've been around for a while, you get how big of a deal this is. It's, it's, star, it's starter block. Like, I just can't, <laughs> we can't grow because you won't be here. You won't be committed. You won't, you won't transfer your loyalty away from you to the group enough where we can actually begin to interconnect our lives in a way that's meaningful and we grow. So that's got to be number one. Number two is time. Number two is time. It's a, build, it's a foundational building block. Time. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says to the church that he planted in Thessalonica, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also... Our own selves, sometimes translated, our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. He says that his philosophy of ministry was bringing the good news of Jesus, but also to share his very self, his life. In some ways, we've been mistaught when it comes to time and time spent. We've invented a term that we call quality time. And we think that quality time can exist outside of quantity time, and that is an illusion. If I come up to anyone that I care about and I say, I've got 15 minutes, let's get some eye contact in and have some quality time, this is not going to work. Quality time happens inside of quantity time. And in some ways, relationships, the cost of them is time. That's how you pay. There is no way around it. There is no way around it. It takes time, time spent. We need some margin where we can just actually be connected to each other in quantity time kind of ways. If I could encourage some of you, I would say, would you please put your phone down? It's wild to me that we live in a moment where everyone feels incredibly lonely. I mean, this is all the surveys, all the stats, everything. It's a, it's a health crisis in America. Loneliness. And then you walk into a room where human beings are in the same space and everybody's just looking at their phone. What are we doing? You know, the people in the room with you are infinitely more interesting than whatever's on your phone. Infinitely more interesting. Now, they're more subtle their complexities are more intricate. You have to focus and pay attention to draw out those interesting tidbits and facts. It's not, it's not shock and awe like your phone screen is, where everything's just pumped right straight at you. So I, uh, This is what it makes me think of. I have a friend who his taste buds don't work right, and he, can, he really can't taste much food. And so he just dumps hot sauce on everything that he eats, because at least it kind of burns his tongue a little bit and gives him a sense of taste. I think for some of us, our screen time has burned our senses to to the ability to appreciate other human beings in our presence. People are fascinating and weird and funny and different but the same. It's unbelievable, but but it takes some time and some energy and it takes some investigation. And the people around you are wildly and infinitely more interesting than your cell phone is. But in some ways, we got to work to be able to, t- t- to detect all the intriguing subtleties. Maybe put your phone down a little bit. And then here's number three. Here's number three. This is just foundational building block. I'm not going in depth with this. you got to have the correct expectations. When we talk about Jesus' new family on the earth, you've got to have the right expectations. I don't know if you know this about you, but this is what we do as human beings. We idealize relationships. We create standards in our mind that sometimes we can't even articulate. We just hold them. The easiest way to make fun of this is what we do with uh, potential romantic partners. We have this idealized version of a future spouse who's going to be amazing and perfect and flawless, and they're never going to bother us, and we're just going to increasingly grow in romance until one of us dies, and we're going to tell them such a sweet speech on their deathbed, and it'll be the first time we cried about our marriage in our whole lives is when our spouse dies, and that's it. And so we have this, this mythical, you know, the one, the one who's out there. And that pagan mysticism just kind of drives us. So there we do the same thing, though, with community, where we've got these idealized pictures in our heads, these standards of what it's going to be and how I'm going to feel and how people are going to treat me. I want you to listen to some words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in one of our recommended reads for, for the series. It's a book called Life Together. Life Together. And it's available on our website and in the lobby as well. Here's what he says about idealism and its impact on the Christian community. He says Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. You destroy it because you can't appreciate the real thing that God has given you in your midst. You have this imaginary picture in your head, and you can't just appreciate the real people that God has surrounded you with. Bonhoeffer is saying that if we're not careful, our ideas about what we think community should be can destroy the beauty of what it actually is. So I I find that sometimes people will just refuse to belong and commit to any actual community because everything is not exactly right in any community. Others of us bounce around from one group to the next, from one church to the next. One of my most frustrating ways that American Christians reveal their immaturity is church hopping. Just perpetual. I'm here for a few years until this group dynamic kind of bothers me, and I go somewhere else where their sins and weaknesses don't bother me yet. And I'm there for a few years, and then they start to get on my nerves because of their sins and weaknesses, and then I'm somewhere else. And we just sort of bounce around looking for the right types of people, or the right organizational structure, or leadership style, or people who like the same things as me, or have the same Enneagram as me, or whatever. Or, for some of us, it's neither of those. And we just get frustrated and begin to sit in judgment about the people that we're with. So we don't withdraw physically. We just withdraw relationally. Because I'm getting hurt here. And I don't really like it that much. And these people aren't measuring up to my idealized standards. And so I'm still physically present. But if I'm honest in my heart and mind, I'm sitting in judgment on this group and on these people. Because they're not what I want. They're not what I think they should be. And all three of those scenarios wind up being destructive to our own discipleship and to the family of God. So we got to come in with the right expectations. And the most important expectation is that you are going to need God's help. (laughs) You are going to need the good news of the gospel to empower you so that you have the resources you will need at your disposal to implement as you begin to try to walk these things out. So Jesus puts us in a family with real people. And those people have real issues, just like I do, and just like you do. And it is not clean, but that's part of the beauty of it. Because that's where God does some of his best work. Because these people get to be a tool in the hand of God to grow us. It's where we learn community is. It's where we learn to love as Jesus did. We learn self-denial and sacrifice in the way that's embodied by our self-denying, sacrificial Savior. Community and other sinners Are a tool in God's hand to take us from who we are to who God wants for us to be. You can't become a more patient person unless you're around people who drive you crazy. Some of you really believe you're patient, but honestly, you just gravitate towards folks who don't bother you. You're not patient, you're just withdrawn. You can't grow in forgiveness unless you're around people who sin against you and require you to forgive. You'll never be like Jesus if you're never committed to someone else that you have to die to yourself for. It's the nature and essence of our faith. And what's really going on is that God's trying to use these flawed sinners to help you learn to love real people, not idealized people. And so when we step into the family that Jesus is creating, we expect that it's going to demand things of us. It's going to infringe on us, on our time. It's going to force us to have conversations that we don't want to have that we're going to get hurt and that we are going to hurt other people and we're going to have to make peace and seek reconciliation and forgiveness and we're going to feel exhausted and sometimes it's going to feel fruitless and it's going to challenge our comfort and it's going to challenge our control and it's going to challenge our faith. And what we have to realize is that's exactly what God intended for it to do so that in those spaces he could step in and actually help us grow. That's the community that Jesus is trying to create on the earth. So if you're not in a group, we'd love to invite you to sign up for a group. That'd be our our biggest request. Uh, We'd love to help you get connected to other people, and let's start the practice of of community. (coughs) Um, I would even say even if you're not a believer, we'd love for you to hop into a group to begin to just see what it looks like to follow Jesus, and you can just ask your questions. You'll find folks who who love to get to talk to you about all that. And for those of us who are in a group, who are in community... (coughs) sorry, let's be fully in. Let's be fully in. Maybe you got one foot out and one foot in. Maybe you've been searching for the perfect idealized community. Maybe you've been holding back out of some amount of fear. Trust that God's gonna use it and let's actually call, uh, follow the call of Jesus to follow him together. So that's our practice for today. we pray for us, we'll transition have a time of communion where we remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and spilled for us to make us the family of God. Let me pray. Jesus, we we want to be in on what you are up to in the world. And you say that part of what you're doing is redeeming and reconciling broken men and women back to yourself and also to each other. So we want to be a part of that. God, we want, to, we want to sort through some of the ways that we think like modern Americans and, and we don't have the right ideas about what it means to belong to a group. We need to help just sorting through some of that and understanding what you really meant when you taught these things. Um, God, for, for many of us, there's so much fear or pain that comes along the call to be uh, intermingled in life with others. And so we need some, some comfort and some peace and some uh, courage. Would you empower us by your spirit to take the right steps? the steps of obedience that we need to take. Jesus, would you more and more make this uh, an increasing point of health for our church as it already is. God, I pray that our sense of togetherness and our relationships with each other would both help us all individually grow and be transformed into your image. They would also shine in our city as a beautiful space where people are known and loved and encouraged and challenged and transformed over time. So we just ask all this for your glory and our good. Amen.